0: Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Music has been as much of an influence on my life and career as design has. I've played drums since I was about three years old, released a number of records, and toured North America and Europe extensively. At some level, I had an appreciation for the crossover between the disciplines related to writing and performing music and those related to design, but only in the past several years really did I embrace the connection and how much the creative processes for each overlap. My conversation today will explore this convergence of music, technology, and design. It's part one of a conversation I had with Haig Arman. He's a professor, designer, and musician living in Vancouver, British Columbia. For the past 10 years, Haig has led the Interaction Design program at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. His research explores the design of music technology, focusing on new gestural interfaces, data sonification, and music visualization. His most recent efforts are in the design-led entrepreneurship and creating new musical instruments using emerging technologies. Here's our conversation. Welcome,
1: Heg. Thank you. Hi. That is a bit of a, a mouthful. Hey, that's uh, supposed to be a short bio, but it's there's a lot there. <laughs>
0: a lot for us to unpack in the the time we have. Yeah. Here thanks today. for
1: having me. I'm excited to uh, get into it. Since the last time
0: we, we talked, I've especially been kind of like following some of the stuff you've been doing, you know, not only like through some of the postings on the website and some stuff on YouTube, but also social media, like Instagram, some of the things that you've been toying around with. And toying around with, I say that with the most possible respect. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I take it as a compliment. Uh,
0: good, good, Definitely good. like toying around. <laughs> so, so you're doing really interesting stuff. And it's this convergence of art and design, music and technology. It's not just in your teaching. It just seems to be kind of ingrained in your life like a part of your life you're really passionate about it what kind of led
1: you down this path this is a an interesting origin story i think because it seems now uh, in retrospect so obvious and kind of a no-brainer but for years and years my musical background and my, uh, so i i i have a degree in music from McGill in Montreal and i studied jazz And I played as a working musician for many years, even played guitar in Cirque du Soleil for a little while, like wearing the tights and all, like it was crazy. (laughs) And then it was a very slow transition, but I moved my career towards design, mostly kind of communication design and designing books and magazines. And that led to designing websites, pretty much left music as a professional career for at least 15 years. And it wasn't until like a few years ago that I was with, uh, you know, my colleagues at Emily Carr and someone had a guitar in a corner of a party and I picked it up and I had this crowd of people around me and everyone's like, Whoa, you can play that thing. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot you guys don't know that aspect of my life. It was such a huge part of my life. And so they were all like, why is that not part of what you do as a designer? And Because it was really, they were two separate worlds. I mean, I was always interested in interfaces that were for musical creation, whether that be like software or hardware instruments, synthesizers, modular synthesis, all of that I can totally geek out around. But I started seeing my students asking, you know, what does it take to design a musical instrument? And it wasn't really part of our curriculum. And all the prototyping tools that we had were really for just screen-based interaction. And I thought, this is something that we definitely need to move into. And we were already kind of designing things around Internet of Things. So it wasn't too hard to kind of shift all of those things like using Arduino and things like that to prototype hardware-based interactions to turn that towards musical creation. So I guess it's been now a couple of years that I've been doing my own individual research, as well as working with a with a school to like get students that are interested in this area to kind of rally around this area that I'm calling sonic interactions.
0: I think you kind of touched on something when you, you know, one, as soon as you start to play music around other people, like, why aren't you you know, it's it's the, the connections that you may not have made before. But then you also mentioned with your students, does their interest change at all? When you kind of were going from, okay, we're going to do Internet of Things and it's going to be Arduino, you know, going from maybe turning a light on remotely to let's work with a musical instrument and start creating sound. Like, did it change anything in the
1: teaching? I think that's an amazing question. I absolutely saw light bulbs going off. And it's just a, a totally different level of engagement, when it's something to do with musical creation, which is in the same way that it was in a different compartment in my brain than UX. For them, it was also not at all related until you start drawing those parallels. And there are so many parallels to draw. And it's not just something as simple and binary, like turning on a light switch, but like the nuance of how you play a note on a piano, or on a guitar, or on a drum, like, There's a hundred different ways of playing that exact same note and those nuances, when you start exploring interfaces that allow for those nuances versus ones that don't allow for those nuances, you, you get into this really deep, rich area of interaction design. Not a lot of people are talking about it, unfortunately. We're still using the same interface devices that were invented, what, 50 years ago? Seven, like the keyboard and the mouse, they're 70 years old now.
0: And that's interesting too, because like as you were talking through that, I, I think of just feedback in general. Feedback as far as I'm interacting with this thing. You talk about like there's types of interactions that you have that are there's no variance to a degree. Right. You know, most of the stuff we design, like the types of stuff I design, it's meant to, you know, you design the thing and it should work consistently and it should react consistently. And those feedback loops are in place. And when they are, then everything's right. Musical instruments are different because any 10 virtuosos at anything can play the same piece and it's going to sound like them. I think there's another level that is brought to interaction with that. It wasn't really until I started looking at a lot of the stuff that you were doing that I was thinking that that started really clicking in my head around interaction design as it relates to musical instruments.
1: And I know you play, right? I've seen you rocking the drums. I do. Uh, like in a serious way. We've talked about playing with other musicians and playing in bands. And so there's the interaction between you and the instrument, which we could talk about for days and days. And then there's the interaction that you and I could make, you on the drums, me on the guitar, and we could have a conversation without saying a single word. And that interaction is also very nuanced And can be easily destroyed when the instruments between us aren't giving us the proper feedback and responsiveness that we're expecting.
0: Yeah, it's it's when playing with someone, there's so much contextual information being created and taking place and you're taking it in and you really don't realize that you click with someone until you click with them like like at least with me if i play with someone new it takes a little while to kind of understand like you know i don't want to step on your creativity you don't want to step on mine there's like this little dance and it, it is a conversation it is an interaction nonverbal in most yeah, cases yeah
1: and it's very sophisticated that's why i say use the word nuanced because Certain musicians are really attuned to listening to other people. And like, you can be a monster on your instrument, but if you're not listening and paying attention to the musicians around you, people don't wanna play with you. Like it's, it's sad, but it's true. Like it's such a big part of playing with other people. And you can liken that to a conversation, right? If you're in a conversation just to sit there and showboat, no one's going to want to ask you the right questions or whatever. Like, it, it's a one-way stream. And we we want music to be like this cyclical, a call and response thing. And like, there's all these mechanisms that are built into music that make good music versus not so good music. And so I've noticed, especially like, let's talk about, you know, in times of COVID, I've been trying to play music with different people in different capacities and you would think at this stage we'd have tools that would make playing remotely work and I've tried a lot of them and they all fail miserably (laughs) and it could just be like a little bit of a latency which is for layman terms the responsiveness of the system so when you hear my voice when I actually use my voice you hearing it, there's always some kind of small delay in, in that time between. And if that time is any more than, say, for some musicians, 30 milliseconds, which is tiny, it's not even detectable to most people, but that's enough to make it really difficult to like actually set up a groove with someone. And you know this as a drummer, because latency is so important for drummers. Like Even with the electronic drums, like in the early days, they didn't get to the point where they were any good until they had dealt with that latency. And so we're still dealing with that when it comes to software. There's a lot of software that's not that great. You can feel the latency and you have to kind of compensate how you play to be able to use that stuff.
0: That's interesting too, because you bring up uh, latency in itself. It's like it can kill yeah. the feel. And you just think of like where you're going to be on the beat and things like that. I think of like even in live situations, I've played in really, really loud bands and Sound people, they hated us in a lot of cases, but I would always want to have, you know, say guitar in my monitor. And they would always wonder, it's like, it is so loud, it's right there, but it's like, no, it's eight feet away. And my monitor is two feet away. And it's more about that timing than it is about the volume, it's about getting it yeah. when it's supposed to come to me as opposed to when those milliseconds after, and it can really mess with your head. I mean,
1: we're really nerding out at this point, which I hope our audience <laughs> can appreciate. But, but that and what you bring to, like that difference between two feet and eight feet that's just distance, and you wouldn't think that that would contain any kind of delay in it, but it absolutely does. There's this amazing story that's told in this book. Have you Are you familiar with David Byrne's book, How Music Works?
0: I, I've heard about it. I have not read it, but I, I hear it's wonderful.
1: So David Byrne of Talking Heads fame, he has this amazing book and he's like this kind of closet architect in a way. Like he knows a lot about buildings and structures. And the book is kind of a study in how different kinds of human-made buildings can influence certain kinds of music. And he starts with like, German composer Wagner, his orchestra was so big that it didn't fit in most concert halls. So he actually had the, the German chancellor at the time build a new concert hall so he could have like all the 16 double basses that were in his orchestra be able to play in this one room. Anyway, that's one story. But the, the story that really relates to what you were just saying is Miles Davis and his band In the early 60s, the one with Tony Williams and Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock, like a killer all-star band. And they were used to playing in these small-ish venues, not at the tiny jazz cellar like New York cellar, but the ones step up from that. Anyway, they went on tour in France and the French promoters put them in these massive concert halls and put them on this massive stage where the drummer. And the bass player were like 10 feet apart. And it took them weeks and weeks of gigging before they figured out how to do it. They basically brought the band all to the center stage and had them within like two or three feet. And then they can start actually building the kind of grooves that they were used to doing. But that space influenced how they played so much that they couldn't actually play the music they were hoping to play. It's really interesting.
0: And back to to your point, I think all of this does relate to design because it's it's what goes into the creation of something creative, this output. Cause I think what you were just talking about there is this a relationship or something that has to be dealt with when you're a musician and when you're recording. Uh so you're a musician that records or plays out live, that there's What you need, there's what the sound person needs. And you're both doing what you're doing for the people that are listening to it. And you both kind of have to respect that side of it. I've been in situations where like, you're going to play drums. We're going to do this track. You're going to play drums in this little room over here and you're not going to be able to see anybody. And you're going to click in and you're going to play and everyone's going to play together and it's going to be the best performance. It's like, no, it's not going to be the best performance. (laughs) And I think... Someone who really got it. There, there's a couple producers that really were good at getting a good live drum sound while being like three feet away from an amp and recording it. And one was Steve Albini.
1: Oh yeah, I was gonna say.
0: And he'll never talk. Like you're never really gonna get the full story about how to. Do his drums, but that was what kind of made him. Is how do you make people feel comfortable in a creative space and still get the output?
1: You know, there's a great podcast that um, Tape Op has. They recently actually interviewed Steve Albini, and he talked about some things, not necessarily what you're talking about, getting that really amazing compressed drum sound. It, everyone thinks it's just like. Having just the right Neve compressors or something to do with the hardware, but it really is something that he heard in his head. At that time, I think people were putting tons of reverb and everything on drums to try to make it sound bigger. And his innovation was let's take all the effects away and just have the sound itself be as fat and big as we could possibly make it. He just changed the sound of recording kind of overnight. And we all know it through like Nirvana and all this stuff, right? It's, he's an incredible producer. And if you're interested in that stuff, the Tape Up podcast, every month, they interview someone really amazing that has influenced music from kind of behind the curtain, like the, the producer role, which is a really interesting part because they, in the same way that George Martin influenced the Beatles, all of these people really shaped the sound of that band. You know, whether it's Soundgarden or whoever, right? The producer played a, an incredible role there.
0: It's funny, and even they, like bring this back into context and in some of the things that I think you're really doing some interesting work in is like like kind of like designing these electronics and designing and building out these things when you're designing something like a musical instrument, especially like an electronic musical instrument, you're building something within a certain amount of constraints, but you still wanna make sure that you're maximizing the potential for it to be a creative product or a creative device.
1: I'm glad you're veering, Like it's easy for me to talk about music and the production of music and stuff, but these days, the way my brain works is that there's no line between music and design. So when we were talking about Steve Albini a second ago, He talks about getting music out of people, but he's using design methods. He talked about getting Chris Cornell to do sound sketches, which are to me like this broad stroke of like, here's what the song could sound like, this is what a verse could be. And it's really like a sketch, like we as designers use sketching, and it's low fidelity in the way that you're trying to figure out conceptually whether you're in the right zone, And it's something that's testable that you can put in front of people and see what kind of reactions you get. So Steve Albini, in a way, was like using design methods to get music out of people that were like, you know, in this interview, he's like, Chris Cornell thought everything he was writing was crap they would be like crumpled up pieces of paper on the floor all over his living room because he's throwing away songs. Like imagine some of those songs, like they're probably amazing. (laughs) Anyway, to get back to like the instruments, it, it really is a back and forth between levels of fidelity. So when I say that, they're all prototypes. There's some that have gotten to the point where they're almost a product. They've been tested enough that I can feel like, oh, I could probably put this out into the world and get it into music stores or whatever. But most of them are just very much like a thought experiment put into hardware. I'm showing you this thing. This is basically like a a Raspberry Pi in a pedal box. So I call this thing the non-instrument because instead of you playing it, it plays you. And and what I mean by that (laughs) is it basically, it's supposed to actually get you to think about privacy in a way. This thing will, wherever I put it, it will scan all Bluetooth devices in the area and it'll grab your uh, unique identifier, the number that is attached to your device, and it'll turn that into a musical phrase and play it back for you. So if I turn this on... I'll turn it up so you can hear it. So, so that is the sound of my uh, my phone. It's grabbing my phone. But if your phone was in the vicinity of this thing, it would add it into the mix of this thing. And uh, so I would leave this in our classroom and students would start recognizing their phone in a melody form. And it would get people to realize that this thing, without anyone asking, will have this kind of invisible handshake with your device and exchange some information. We do that all the time, our, or our devices do that all the time. We don't realize that. So it's sort of an instrument that it makes in music, but it really helps you think about how we give away our privacy without really even thinking about it. That, that,
0: that's <laughs> one that's awesome. With that project itself like what, what what led you to go down that path was it something that that you just kind of pulled together or
1: i was just figuring out how to get like these raspberry pi's to generate music and at first like i'd give it a set of uh, rules like play in this tempo but change it up give me quarter notes i was just trying to get this device to make music by itself And then I was getting into conversations about privacy with, like, as we all are getting into these conversations about privacy, based on things like Cambridge Analytica, and like, it's in the news all the time that our privacy is being, like, there's this amazing book out right now called The Era of Surveillance Capitalism. Do you know about that book?
0: No, I don't.
1: It's a really, really crazy, important book. It's something that really makes me think about how much we, we give away in our personal lives. It's just built in the, every, almost all the channels we use. You could, It's kind of a given that if you do anything with Google, they're going to be saving every search that you have. And all these things that we tend to not want to think about it because it's kind of scary how much information they know. Anyway, that's a whole other podcast that I'll come back to to talk about. <laughs> but so I was like, what what kind of instrument could I make that would get people to be a little more aware of that breach of privacy that's happening all the time when you walk down the street and two devices that are not evil devices. They're not like, it's. I'm not trying to talk about any kind of conspiracy here. I'm just saying that our every device we have is trained to like be friends with another device like it. And so they want to talk to each other. And sometimes they end up exchanging even a tiny little bit of information, but that's enough that if someone is tracking where that information is going, they can find out where you are at any moment in the day. It might not seem threatening to you, but it might. It might be something you don't want to give away.
0: I think what's especially interesting about that is you found a way to, to connect with people through something that was kind of lighthearted and engaging, but it's really communicating a a pretty serious subject. So it becomes like this centerpiece for that conversation that isn't preachy.
1: Thanks. I appreciate that. Like It's designed to be right on the edge of creepy. It's not quite creepy because it's just, oh, that's a nice melody, but I can't do anything with that melody. That information's not being shared. It's not going into any database and it's not logging every time you you come into the room. There's so many things that it could do that a lot of companies are doing that could be later on used kind of against the people that are using their devices.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's just in general, it's a challenge. Like we, if we work in technology, we're kind of at a point where there's so much information flowing and in a lot of ways we're the gatekeepers of that information and we have to make the right choices. But at the same time, so many, it's very difficult to kind of communicate unless you're seeing the output of it or you're experiencing the output of it. Yeah. um, You don't really connect with it. You don't really connect with what that really means.
1: I have a grad student right now that's doing some really cool work that he's calling ambient dark patterns. It's really about how we could just walk down the street and give away tons of information. And he's suggesting that most people don't know this. And I think he's right that most people don't know this. And they should be basically negotiating privacy or terms and conditions with every public park that they walk into, like any shopping mall. All of that stuff is now being surveilled. So we need to have some kind of either a blanket privacy policy or every space you walk into somehow knows your preferences and will respect your privacy. It's a difficult thing, and he's trying to figure out a variety of scenarios that get people to be more aware of the implications of this, as well as designing a scenario, like a future scenario, that helps policy uh, makers see the seriousness of this and start putting policies in place that will start protecting people more.
0: You just planted this image of uh, you putting the device that you created into like the room with Congress and this and the thing light up like a Christmas tree. People might take it a little bit more seriously from a policy standpoint once they see how much information is just floating out there or potentially floating. If you
1: know anyone, I'll send it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right. I, I hear they frown upon just like getting a box within a piece of electronics in it. Probably in Congress, for a good reason, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it for this episode. Be sure to listen to part two as we'll continue our conversation with Heg on how he uses music and technology as an integral part of his teaching. Thanks for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works, and if you can give us a rating or a review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. You can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A very special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Roll-Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. nerds i'm sarah the paper nerd and if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received well quite a lot get your paper fix on the paper fold where i host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic stationery from the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond there's a lot to cover so come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon the paper fold now part of the evergreen podcast network